in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, John Flack, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is your new co-host, Brian Fry. Brian, how does it feel to be a host? Evening, everybody. Um, no different. This is, this is like turning 18 or, you know, you just do what you do. Okay. Okay. You can buy cigarettes now then. <laughs> and, uh, and pornography and lottery tickets. Oh yeah. Which if you win the lottery, then you can have a lot of cigarettes and more pornography. So that's kind of a, you can really think how much of that you can have. So, um, it's, it, it's much more exciting when you win the lottery. Oh, <laughs> So, uh, another thing that is as exciting as winning the lottery, we hit the lottery tonight because we have a great guest on with us, uh, one of my good friends from Nashville, Tennessee, and a, uh, one of my former roommates uh, from the University of Tennessee as well, uh, Byron Figaro. Say hello to the people, Byron. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, Byron, this is your first time on the show. Is this your first podcast ever? Uh, definitely, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome. Thank you. Well, you're killing it so far, I gotta say. Um, oh, good to hear. <laughs> you, you've succeeded at words. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get to know you just a little bit more. So I'm gonna hit you right out the gate. What was your most awkward movie moment? Um, my most awkward movie moment was watching this uh, this one film with my then girlfriend. Uh, the movie was All Good Things. Um starring Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst. And it was just a very unusual story. Uh, it was based around this uh, couple, and the uh, guy, Ryan Gosling, came from a well-to-do family, and um, things just kind of spiral out of control, and then it just gets weirder and weirder, and you know, I'll, I won't ruin it, but it made for a very awkward talk after the movie was over. Oh. <laughs> Were you the one who went to bat for this movie, making it worse? Well, we kind of both decided on it. We couldn't really decide, figure out what we wanted to watch. It was like uh, Netflix, I think. And um, we just kind of like, oh, this looks interesting. And it definitely was, but not in the way we thought. Okay. Okay. And uh, so uh, the other end of the spectrum, do you have a favorite movie of all time? Yes. Scott Pilgrim vs. the World is my favorite nice. movie of all time. Yeah. That's a good choice. Yeah, I know you're making some of our viewers happy, and uh, it was funny. We had one of our previous guests come on, and uh, she uh, she was not a fan, and it ruffled some feathers. So uh, it's it, consider this to bring balance now. What was your first R-rated movie? First R-rated movie that I can remember was uh, True Lies. Oh, that's a good first one. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. I I want to say that that was on at one point in time because I remember my parents shooing me out of the room at that scene where. Uh, <laughs> 
Jamie Lee Curtis is stripping for Arnold. Yeah. And, and, and it's funny because that was the only part of that movie I remembered for a really long time. It's like if they had just let it. Well, no, I'm just saying if they had let it go, I would have probably continued playing with toys and not cared much. But because I was shooed out of the room, I remember Jamie Lee Curtis's amazing legs. Yep. Yep. And so, Byron, how old are you at this point when you're seeing True Lies? I I think it had just come out, and I can't remember what year. It was like early 90s, I think. Wasn't it? 94. 94, I yeah. I would have been nine. Oh, wow. You got your first R-rated movie well before me. I didn't get my first uh, one until I was 12, so, uh, which was Backdraft for me. Ah, uh, another good one. Uh, you know, the first movie I owned, though, now granted it didn't happen until 96 or 97, was Bad Boys, and that came out in 95. Mm, yeah. So that was on an ownership basis. Byron, what's the last movie you've seen? The last movie I saw was uh, Into the Spider-Verse. I saw that a couple weeks ago. How is it? I liked it. Yeah, when I first uh, went into it and when I saw the commercials, I kind of thought, oh, it's kind of a cash grab to sell more spider merch. But um, I thought it was really good. The story was uh, heartwarming. I liked the animation style. I thought the uh, voice acting was great. I wasn't disappointed at all. Would you want to see another one of these Spider-Verse movies? Um, I would. I would. I really like the humor. I, I feel like they could do another one. I'd like to see one with uh, Miles Morales kind of in his in uh, in his prime throughout more of the movie instead of kind of learning through most of it. And maybe we'll get that. I've had a hard time with Spider-Man for a really long time, mainly because of Tobey Maguire. But I've always really wanted them to do a lengthy Spider-Man series for Maximum Carnage, which I know they're kind of looking at heading that direction with the ending of the last Venom movie. But just having, I don't know if you ever read those comics, but just having all those spider villains and then all the spider heroes um, kind of at war with one another. It was a really cool comic series. Mm, it would be cool. I would watch it animated. Like I don't, I don't need it to be live action, but it would be cool. So let's get into today's movie. Uh, it's Oscar season, and being that we just had the Oscars come through, we wanted to go back and look at a retro Oscar movie. And so today we're going to look at Unforgiven from 1992. It grossed $101.1 million, uh, so this does pretty well. Sometimes the award winners don't always gross a lot of money, but this one did. And it came in 11th on the box office in 1992. It uh, came just behind A League of Their Own and above The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. IMDb really likes this movie. It gives it a very high rating of 8.2, and Rotten Tomatoes likes it even more. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes like it 90, uh, give it 96%, and the audience score is 93%. Uh, this was nominated for some Oscars. It, uh, it actually won Best Picture, beating out The Crying Game, A Few Good Men, Howard's End, and Scent of a Woman, and Clint Eastwood won Best Director, and Gene Hackman won Best Supporting Actor, and it won Best Film Editing from Joel Cox. It was also nominated for Best Actor for Clint Eastwood, but he lost out to Al Pacino in Scent of a Woman. Original Screenplay uh, was also nominated, but that lost to The Crying Game. It was also nominated for Best Cinematography, Best Sound, and Best Art Direction. It did pretty well at the Golden Globes. Uh, Clint Eastwood won Best Director, and Gene Hackman also won Best Supporting Actor at the Golden Globes. This movie came home with some hardware, and that's not the end of the awards because the AFI American Film Institute ranked this number four on in the 
10 greatest westerns of all time. They did that in 2008. And they also ranked at number 68 on AFI's list of 100 greatest movies of all time. So that's a high prestige there. And so this is from 2007 that they did that countdown. And this is uh, clearly a movie that is well-loved. Byron, why don't you tell us, had you seen this movie before? If so, uh, when, when did you first see it? What were your thoughts coming in now? I had seen it before. The first time I saw it was around September last year. A friend of mine recommended it when he brought it up, and I told him I had never seen it before. And I actually had never seen a Clint Eastwood Western before watching Unforgiven either. So I kind of went in looking for like the stereotypical Clint Eastwood role, and it took a while in the movie before it really got to it and I was kind of surprised by it um but I enjoyed it a lot more the second time that I that I watched it kind of knowing what was going to go what was going to happen mm, well if you want to continue to go down the Clint Eastwood hole uh please come back because he's got a lot of good ones so yeah Brian how about you had you seen Unforgiven before uh yes I have seen Unforgiven before um I've kind of gone through a little westerns renaissance here in the last couple years where I've really gone back and met meaning to watch a lot of these movies that I would watch in passing or out of boredom or something like that really to appreciate them and uh I I I've kind of kindled a nice new love for westerns did you like this one when you first saw it and what were your thoughts coming in this time sure I I think when I first watched it there was a lot of this stuff on. It was probably on AMC. I was probably watching it in between Outlaw, Josie Wales, and Good and the Bad and the Ugly or something like that. And a lot of uh, Clint Eastwood's westerns were running together for me. So having rewatched it for this podcast, I kind of got to put some scenes in order that I had mentally log jammed into other movies over time. So it was nice to get it sorted out and watch a, a real classic. So The Good, The Pale, and The Unforgiven was the movie that you were exactly. remembering? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, so I had never seen this one before, and uh, Byron was helping us think about what movies we should probably get into, and uh, he threw out a movie I didn't know. I was like, ooh, I'm interested in this. And then I found out it had Morgan Freeman and Clint Eastwood and, and um, Gene Hackman, and I couldn't pass that up. I don't have a, as wide of an exposure to Westerns as Brian does, but the ones I've seen I have enjoyed. I think I've gone after many of the top ones, but this one, to me, was actually quite different, and it does stand out in my mind. In many ways, I kind of found it to be the anti-Western, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So I had a great time with it, and I would recommend it, and I watched it like three times before this podcast. So at this point, we're going to talk about the movie and have to spoil it for people. So if you're a spoiler adverse and you've not seen the movie Unforgiven, I recommend that you pause this, go watch the movie, and come back and enjoy the rest of the episode with us. Because in order to talk about this in any depth, we got to spoil it. We'll be back after these messages. And you know what? Brian, John, and I here at the Retro Movie Roundtable, we came away with uh, something pretty special at the Oscars. To take a listen to this. Now here to present the Academy Award for Best Movie Podcast, the Academy Award winner, Jimmy Stewart. Every year, movie fans flock in abundant numbers to the wonderful movie podcasts. The Academy Award is proud to honor this important medium tonight that blesses our ears. Say, so, so what, what gives with this movie podcast business? What is a podcast anyway? James, just stick to the script. 
right, huh? Well, so it's so special about him. I'm opinionated people yak about movies. I'd have a seat at my in-law's house for dinner. Anyhow, here are the outstanding nominees for Best Movie Podcast. Steven Spielberg Explains Movies. James Lipton's Favorite Curse Word. Siskel and Ebert's Two Thumbs Up, One Metal Finger. Hi, that's not nice. Retro Movie Roundtable. Great films of J- Judge Reinhold. There's an entire podcast dedicated to the works of Judge Reinhold? I mean, he's a swell guy and all, but golly, I don't have—I don't even have my own podcast here. John, Judge Reinhold is one of his own. James, just give the award now. Get off. Well, well, all right, all right. The Oscar for Best Movie Podcast goes to the Retro Movie Roundtable. How about that, everybody? Give it up for the Retro Movie Roundtable. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Um, John, Brian, and I want to thank the millions of listeners, all of the high-stakes investors who made this effort possible. Uh, Thanks to all the presidential supporters we have to help promote the show and the big-name actors who have helped uh, get our name out there. We mostly want to thank all the fans who go to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and any other fine podcast provider. And uh, particularly the fans who take 20 seconds of their precious time to subscribe, rate, and review and comment on the show. Those fans who like us on Facebook and write to us at RetroMovieRoundTableYahoo.com. You're the reason we make this show. Thank you. Take care of yourselves and watch more movies. Woo! Farvis number one! Farvis number one! It meant a lot getting that award from Jimmy Stewart. He just—he's not so much a fan of podcasts. He doesn't get the whole podcast thing, though. So. Yeah, well, it's a new world, and a gold statue. Byron, could you give us people who haven't seen Unforgiven in a long time a refresher by giving us a plot rundown on Unforgiven? I would be happy to. William Money who's a reformed outlaw and widower who lost his wife to smallpox. In 1881, in Big Whiskey, Wyoming, starts off with two cowboys attack and disfigure prostitute Delilah Fitzgerald with a knife after she laughs at Quick Mike's unfortunately small penis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a little hard to get that out. Uh, as punishment for cutting up uh, Delilah, uh, the local sheriff, little Bill Daggett, orders the cowboys to pay compensation in the form of several horses to the brothel owner, Skinny Dubois. The rest of the prostitutes are outraged by the sheriff's decision and offer a $1,000 reward to anyone who kills the two cowboys now. This infuriates little Bill, who's trying to keep order in the town, when he hears of it, and furthers his resolve to enforce the law that does not allow guns within the town of Big Whiskey. Miles away in Kansas... A uh, boastful young man calling himself the Schofield Kid visits the pig farm of the reformed outlaw, William Money, uh, seeking to recruit him to help kill the cowboys uh, up in Big Whiskey and claim the reward. Now, in his youth, Money was a notorious outlaw and murderer, but he's now a repentant widower, raising two children. Initially, he refuses to help. Then uh, when Money recognizes that his farm is basically failing, Uh, and it puts his children's future in jeopardy. So he reconsiders and sets off to catch up with the kid. He decides to stop by his old friend, Ned Logan, and recruit him to uh, help him 
complete the task. Uh, no, Ned Logan is also a retired uh, gunfighter and assassin. Back to Wyoming, British-born gunfighter, English Bob, who is also an old acquaintance and rival of uh, little Bill Daggett, is uh, also seeking the, re- the reward for the uh, cowboy's heads. He arrives in Big Whiskey with his biographer, W.W. Beauchamp, who is from the East and uncritically believes the tales that Bob tells him about his noble exploits. Little Bill and his deputies disarm Bob when he gets into town, and Bill beats him savagely, hoping to discourage other would-be assassins from attempting to claim the bounty on the cowboys. The next morning, Bill ejects Bob from town, but his biographer, Beauchamp, decides to stay and write about Little Bill who debunks many of the romantic notions of Beauchamp has about the Wild West, including the importance of being fast on the draw. Money and Logan and Schofield Kid arrive in town during a rainstorm and head into the saloon to uh, meet with the prostitutes and learn the cowboy's location. Now, delirious from fever after riding in the rain, Money is sitting alone in the saloon when Little Bill and the deputies arrive to confront him. Little Bill beats him up and kicks him out of the saloon for carrying a pistol, um, violating the no-gun clause for Big Whiskey. Ned Logan and the kid are upstairs getting, uh, in quotation marks, advances in kind. They escape through the back window when they hear the ruckus going on uh, downstairs. Then the three regroup at a barn outside town later where they nurse uh, William Money back to help. And then they ambush and kill the first of the cowboys, Logan, who uh, gravely wounded Bunting but was unable to finish him off, realizes that he's no longer able to perform as a hired gun and resolves to turn home. However, Money feels that they must finish the job, so Money and the Schofield Kid head to the other cowboy's ranch where the kid ambushes the second cowboy, Quick Mike, in an outhouse and kills him while he's on the toilet. After they escape, a distraught kid confesses that he had never killed anyone before and renounces his life as a gunfighter. When one of the prostitutes meets the two men outside of Big Whiskey to give them the reward, Money learns that Logan had been captured by Little Bill's men and that Bill had tortured him into revealing Money's true identity, with Logan dying from the torture. So the kid heads back to Kansas to deliver the reward money from Money's children and Logan's wife, yeah, to Money's children, Logan's wife, while an embittered William Money, finishing Logan's bottle of whiskey after years of sobriety, returns to town to take revenge on Little Bill. That night, Money arrives and sees Logan's corpse displayed in a coffin outside the saloon with a sign reading, this is what happens to assassins around here. Inside, Little Bill has assembled a posse to pursue Money and the kid. Money walks in alone to confront the posse and kills Dubois first, the owner of the saloon and brothel. In the frantic shootout that follows, Money shoots Bill and kills several of his deputies. Crouching behind cover, he orders the others to leave the saloon. Now, critically wounded, Bill gasps out to Money that he doesn't deserve to die in this way, and Money replies, deserves got nothing to do with it, and then kills him. Money then leaves Big Whiskey after screaming out a warning to the town folk that he will return for more vengeance if Logan is not buried properly or if any of the prostitutes are harmed. The closing scene is a title card epilogue and says that Money may have moved to, with his children to San Francisco where he prospered in dry goods. Dried goods? Tycoon. Yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah. Still uh, a thriving industry. Sounds lucrative. <laughs> I thought that scroll was a strange finish, to be honest with you. Like, I was like, oh, okay. There's more. 
Okay. Yeah. The more you know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's been a hallmark of a lot of Westerns. If you watch like Wyatt Earp, it does that scroll at the end, just kind of giving you the last. Usually they'll read it too. One of the things I really liked about the Wyatt Earp movie, or actually I guess it was Tombstone, uh, with its scroll was uh, talking about how uh, when Wyatt Earp died, um, early Western actors were actually at his funeral. And that was just a really interesting thing to me, that he he lived long enough to, to see himself immortalized in film. I thought it was interesting. Eastwood, uh, when he was reading through this the first time, wasn't real clear on who the hero was. And uh, as he was reading through it, he thought little Bill was the hero initially. But it's not until like he goes off the deep end that he realizes that he's not. He's kind of a villain. And uh, it just was interesting to him how it establishes that violent, uh, glamorous mythology of murder and gunslinging in the West uh, is kind of peeled away. And it's about disillusionment of violence and the guilt that comes from killing. And it's not glorifying killing. And so that was just a very interesting thing. And you see how people do glorify it in the character of like Beauchamp. Uh, and how he's writing about the gunmen and the quick shooters of the West, as well as little Bill uh, making less glamorous stories, uh, you know, telling uh, him about killing of unarmed men that English Bob had done. And he's kind of debunking that as well. So little Bill, to a lesser extent, peels back that uh, luster of murder as well. So that's why I said this movie is kind of the anti-Western. Uh, Brian, you've seen more than I have. Uh, it, am I wrong in saying that this is unusual? Normally, uh, you can go in and shoot everybody up and everybody claps for you and then you ride off into the sunset. Um, I would say that that was definitely a, a, um, a label that got put on a lot of Westerns based on the fact that, yes, there is a bulk that do that. But if you look at movies like this, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid um, and some others, and I'll even toss a book in there. Uh, the guy, his name is Larry McMurtry. He wrote the lonesome dub series. He wrote a book. Uh, it's a smaller novel about, uh, Wyatt Earp and some other characters that have name recognition. Uh, it's called the last kind word saloon. And it's very much like this movie. It's, it's kind of debunking some stuff. It's making some assertions that are against the popular thought and it, it's it's a great Western read because it's not your, you know, go in, shoot everybody. I'm the, you know, the hot hand with a pistol. So, yeah, I do. I enjoy stuff like this. Byron, what about you? What, what's your take on this uh, as a story? I thought it was really interesting to play on what you were saying about them kind of disassembling the, the mystique of the Wild West. Like, they really went out of their way to make no one you know the straight-laced white knight hero like pretty much everyone's done something terrible like in this movie right even the supposed villains quick mike is kind of a stereotypical villain but davy boy just to compare the two i think they basically had to hire people to protect quick mike the guy who actually cut up delilah mm -hmm. but in the sense of davy boy he actually went above and provided more than he was supposed to in payment for what his friend did to Delilah. And when they were um, ambushing him, like his friends were there to protect him. So it really made you feel like is, you know, when Clint and, uh, or Clint, when uh, William Money and Ned Logan and Schofield Kid were up there, you know, taking shots at um, the first cowboy, it's like, who's really the good guy here? I mean, it just seemed a little malicious or maybe not so cut and dry, kind of a gray area. 
Yeah, you could see Morgan Freeman didn't, or sorry, as you mentioned, Ned did not have a stomach for killing, especially as, uh, you know, you don't often see a slow suffering death like that. It takes several minutes for him to die, and they have to sit there listening to him. Uh, it kind of, uh, you know, in a less funny version, it reminds me a lot of uh, Austin Powers when he hits the button, and uh, he's like, oh, I'm very badly burned down here. I'm not dead. If someone could please come help me. <laughs> Yeah. My legs are broken. They're starting to smell like almonds. <laughs> I, indeed, I'm still not dead. You shot me in the arm. So, uh, this 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 uh, long suffering scene definitely has that as well. I did think another interesting thing was the Schofield kid. Obviously, he is even more so infatuated with the legend of these gunslingers that he wants to be one himself. Beauchamp wants to write about them and romanticizes about them in books, but the Schofield kid uh, kind of, you know, wants to be this tough guy, and so he's looking forward to getting a kill. And uh, but as soon as he does, he realizes, uh, you know, to quote the movie Walkart, "You don't want none of this." remember the first time i killed me a man it's actually one of the things i always really appreciated about the show firefly too is the western vibe they added to it uh to really make it feel like the frontier even though it's a sci-fi drama um there's some great lines in that one too that tie in with a lot of great westerns now, Byron, you mentioned that you thought it took a long time for Clint Eastwood to kind of become the tough guy cowboy. Uh, did you enjoy that transition? Did you like seeing him kind of be this guy who's older, over the hill, has a hard time even getting on a horse and can't shoot a can off of a fence post by unloading a whole revolver rounds on it? Did you like that or was it uh, heavy handed or what was your take on that transition of the character of William Money? Well, I really liked it. The second, I liked it more the second time around. I was definitely, I wasn't expecting it. Like uh, when I first saw it, um, I also appreciated it more. It was kind of a, a subtle, more subtle approach to ramping up or bringing him back from the sobriety and um, his reformed ways due to his late wife. I, I did get to a point the first time I watched it when he was, uh, he got sick and he was kind of like shivering under his his coat or poncho. I'm just kind of like. This is not the Clint Eastwood that <laughs> I was expected to see uh, when I was watching this. But it only made the end that much more satisfying, I think. I remember on my first rewatch of this, I, like I said, I was still trying to straighten out certain Westerns in my head to make sure I remember the movie correctly. And there was a point where I had this like weird thought that either they were going to do a montage of him getting better at shooting or it was going to be like, they kept asking him if he wanted some whiskey. And I was like, the second he takes a drink of whiskey, it's going to be like Popeye and spinach. He's going <laughs> to take a drink of whiskey and he's going to be able to shoot again. Uh, that, that, that had crossed my mind as well, but you're right. This was a different kind of Western movie. It reminded me a lot of the scene of uh, Seth MacFarlane, a million ways to die in the West, trying to shoot the can off the post, but uh, he gets closer and closer to it and still can't hit it even like at point blank. So I was just remembering the line from Beer Fest when uh, the guy who um, I'm Barry Badgernath comes in with the quarters and he starts hitting all the cups and stuff. And they're like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And he goes, I'm better when I'm drunk. <laughs> so, Brian, why don't you give us a quick cast rundown here and let us know who the major players are? 
All right. Well, I'm going to go with the big three first. So that's obviously Clint Eastwood as Bill Money. Uh, we got uh, Gene Hackman as Little Bill Daggett. Morgan Freeman as Ned Logan. Um, some of the supporting actors, well, ancillary actors here are going to be Richard Harris as English Bob. Um, I also really just want to interject here that I love the way Westerns make the most on-the-nose nicknames ever. It's like... He's like, oh, what's your nickname? English Bob. Why? He's English. Oh, all right then. Uh, or uh, uh, Jimenez uh, Wolvet's character, the Schofield kid. He even asked him why they call you the Schofield kid on account of the Schofield revolver I carry around. Oh, okay. If you had an if you if you had a uh, nickname, would you be iPhone Brian? I don't know. There'd be a lot of iPhone people. I, I'd I'd want something a little bit more like specific. I mean, I guess if it's just what, what, if it's just would, the people who know me, I'd be like Spokane you Brian. Okay, Spokane Brian. Okay, Spokane Brian. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's funny when my dad first came out here, he was like, just because once you leave town, it's very much like plains, and he was like, man, it's kind of like the Wild West out here, and I was like, well, sort of. And uh, he later told me that he tried to convince my stepmom that he was going to buy me a revolver for Christmas. And I was like, that would have been the best present ever. And he was like, yes. And she would have murdered me. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Keep going through your cast rundown. Uh, oh, no problem. This is a good spot for a story. Uh, we have uh, Saul Rubnick as W.W. Beauchamp. Uh, we've got Francis Fisher as uh, Strawberry Alice. Uh, Anna, oh, excuse me, Anna Levine for Delilah Fitzgerald. Dave Munchie for Quick Mike. Rob Campbell for Davey Bunting. Anthony James as Skinny Dubois. And Tara Frederick as Little Sue. So some interesting casting comments are... Actually, in the early 80s, Francis Ford Coppola actually got the go-ahead to take on this script, and he met with John Malkovich to offer him the role of William Money. Uh, Malkovich recalled uh, the offer uh, was not that serious. Thank goodness I can say for myself and the poor public that uh, Clint absolutely was better, uh, and had I done it, it would have been a total failure. Who would have wanted to see that? I wouldn't. Definitely over-the-top praise for Clint Eastwood there, but I definitely can't see John Malkovich in it. I can't... uh... Yeah. I'm trying to think right now if I've ever seen him in a Western. Like all the parts I've ever seen John Malkovich, uh, excuse me, John Malkovich play have been weird, like super eccentric, weird parts. So I'm just trying to picture him as like a over the hill assassin, you know, kind of clinging to the few things he's got left. It just it's not odd enough, I guess, for John Malkovich. Yeah. I don't think he could do a Western accent either. I can't see him. It's like, I told you, Ned, I don't do that anymore. My wife cured me of it. They definitely collaborated a couple times after that. I know most notably in the line of fire. I think they were also in the changeling together. But um, yeah, it's it's one of those things where I think he's he's more su- suited for more contemporary roles. And wouldn't he have Not been saying really he young? Can't do it. Uh, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, they can't be that far off. I mean, I'm sure they're probably 20 years off, but still. I look that up. So this is actually, uh, Eastwood is probably second to only John Wayne as being the iconic Western actor. But uh, as of 2019, this is Clint Eastwood's final Western film. So that's kind of a significant uh, moment 
for his career, uh, and it's kind of nice that they gave him an Oscar for something that he was such an icon for such a long time on. It's kind of interesting, Byron said, this was your introduction to Clint Eastwood. In many ways, this is him transitioning into a different kind of movie. Clint Eastwood is 23 years older than John Malkovich. Okay, so you're right, Byron. Uh, There would have been quite an age difference then. Gene Hackman actually turned down the part of William Money before the script came to Clint Eastwood. Eastwood reteamed, though, with uh, Gene Hackman and Absolute Power in 1997. That's also another fun movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gene Hackman got a flavor for Westerns here because he went on to do a couple of them. He did Geronimo and American Legend in 93, Wyatt Earp in 94, and The Quick and the Dead in 95. So uh, while this is Clint Eastwood's last, this is one of Gene Hackman's uh, run-of-the-mid-90s uh, Westerns here. Yeah, I like Gene. Um He's one of those guys that you, I don't know if it's accurate to say he had a love-hate relationship with acting, but I know he's retired and come back a couple times. But man, what a great guy. I love seeing him in just about everything I've ever seen him in. I mean, there's not a movie where I'm like, oh no, it's this movie and it has Gene Hackman. Uh, Crimson Tide to this day is still one of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. One other casting fun note is Clint Eastwood uh, had his mother, Ruth Wood, and she toiled through a very long, uncomfortable day wearing a very heavy Western dress and as an extra in the film and uh, where she boards a train. But that scene is unfortunately cut from the movie. Uh, so he cut his own mother's part from the movie saying it was just too long and something had to go. She said all of us forgiven when he brought home the Academy Award. William Money is so cold, he uh, kills women and children and also cuts his own mother out of films. Brutal. I could see Clint Eastwood being very no BS on set. Like, just, you know, we're not friends while we're on here. I'd be really interested to read, like, a biography in, like, the eyes of his family. Like, just, I'm curious what it's like being around Clint Eastwood on a day-to-day basis. Are you going to eat that steak, or do I have to shoot you for it? Always being the toughest guy in the room, that's for sure. Byron, what do you think about Clint Eastwood as a director in this movie? Um, you know, I, I, I like most of the movies that he's directed, um, especially this one. One thing that I learned about, it was a change that uh, he decided to make from the original script. Um, in the original script, the, act, the opening and the ending text were actually supposed to be narrated, and it was Clint Eastwood who decided to make it a scrolling text instead. And uh, I really like the decision because coupled with the, the stark silhouette of the ranch, made me feel like I was reading or was about to start reading a book and the silhouette served like the cover. I actually kind of got an obituary vibe from it. That that works too. (laughs) I saw one analysis that actually said this movie kind of starts where another Western would likely finish with him being, uh, you know, out there in the sunset uh, and the pasture having gotten out of this bad life and, you know, raising the kids. And even though his wife's no longer there, She's cured him of his uh, ailments, and he is now uh, on the right path as a farmer who's looking after his kids. So it's kind of an interesting thing. And also, as I mentioned, most movies end with uh, westerns and riding off into the sunset. This movie, he rides off, but it's into a dark, rainy night. And it's not done with clapping and cheering of thanks for saving our town. It's done, uh, you know, in a threatening manner of, like, don't make me come back here. So... Again, another moment of how this breaks with the template. I liked those clever moments there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I would say that any time that you can depart from the regular and make it a salient point in what you're trying to get through in the movie, as in 
these were all dark people. These were all bad people. This wasn't the good guy riding off into the sunset. This is a guy who came to do bad things, and after his bad things were completed, he rode back home. Now, once back home, you have your sunset. Like, he did what he had to do for his family, but everything he did that night was dark, it was stormy, and insert whether you think they deserved it or not here. Deserves got nothing to do with it, Brian. Exactly. I thought this was interesting. Uh, in 1981, Eastwood actually purchased the script. It was actually titled Whore's Gold, or also titled The Cut Horror Killings, also known as the William Money Killings. And Eastwood thought these were terrible names, all of which is true. But he actually took the script and just put it in a drawer uh, for nine years. And he thought he needed to be a little older to come back and approach this role. And he had some other things that he wanted to do in the meantime, but he opened up the drawer and there's like a length of time before you have to let a script leave your hands. And so he said, now it's time to do it. And uh, in many ways, it like it was his swan song as the Western guy. So it, he feels like this was the best Western he has ever worked. That's high praise. This is kind of a random piece, but I don't know if this, if anybody was inspired to do the math on this, but uh, I could be incorrect, but money being 62 years old, if you take how old Clint Eastwood actually is to when this movie takes place, and that seems yes. to look about right. So if he's 62 years old and he quit drinking 11 years prior, that would have made him 51 where he married his wife who died when she was 21 or I'm sorry, 29, according to the gravestone, which means when she made him stop drinking, she would have been 18. So that's an 18 year old marrying a 51 year old, which I think was not so uncommon for back then. Maybe. Sure. I just tossing it out there that I was like, all right, all right, all right. I got to do some math real quick. Well, I'm looking up the age <laughs> difference in our president uh, and uh, his wife. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Uh, while we're waiting on that, uh, did you? Ha- Twenty-four okay. years. Twenty-four That's years. So. A lot less. <laughs> Byron, was there anything in this movie that made you just say, "All right, all right I gotta, I gotta think about this on for a minute"? Not, not specifically. You mean, I guess, like a critique of it, or just a no? Just, math? Every, <laughs> you know, every now and then, there's something that I just can't oh. stop thinking about until I time out and really dwell on it for a minute, and then I can move on. Yeah, as soon as I saw the name on the gravestone and he admitted how long he he hadn't been drinking, I was like, and then he mentioned at least a dozen times that she had made him stop drinking. So I was like, ooh, yeah, man, that's that's a wise teenager beyond her years to get a fifty-one-year-old mass murderer and outlaw to quit drinking. True. I guess one thing that kind of struck me, and I guess it's kind of tied to. Uh, what caught your eye is I kind of started to wonder if they were really his kids. Hmm. You think not? I don't know why I, I didn't really see definitive proof. Now she was a very apparently pretty pious woman. So I guess the fact that he met her and she was alone with two kids may not seem that likely unless her husband died, but then I'm probably reading too much into it, but it just got me kind of wondering if they were, they were really his or if he had just met her. I think th- I think along those lines, this market is definitely hurting for babysitters. Uh, it's, uh, I thought it was an unusual thing for him to say, hey, 10-year-old son, look after your six-year-old sister. I'll be back in, I don't know, a month. See, that's why 
I actually really like Westerns. That's something super common in Westerns. And this is why kids today suck. Like, can you imagine being like, all right, son, I need you to look after your sister, tend the animals, make sure no one kills you, watch out for snakes, all feed yourselves, you know, kill an ox if you have to. Meanwhile, kids are like, I want an iPhone. My iPhone currently sucks. I want a new iPhone. And I'm like, oh, God, this is just Look at these kids. These kids could take care of themselves. I would like to see a Kevin McAllister Home Alone version <laughs> of what William Money's kids have to do while he's away. I like to imagine that somebody comes to threaten the ranch, but they rig up a series of elaborate gadgets and foil the robber's plans. Bah. We could call it Unforgiven too while William's away. <laughs> Think about it, Clint. <laughs> As far as fathering the children, there was a former Indian wrestler and farmer who fathered his second child at age 96. Wow. And, you know, I think it's also worth mentioning, We I actually meant to bring this up in the cast, Clint Eastwood has a relationship with Strawberry Alice, who is Frances Fisher. When the Oscars actually roll around, she is pregnant with a child, with his child specifically, and uh, so all of this talk of children and whether they're really his or not, turns out, uh, you know, William Money might have actually had a free one. We didn't know about it off screen. So. There you go. Yeah. What do you think about the, uh, I, th- I thought the prostitutes were interesting. Normally, uh, again, in, in a Western, you kind of have the uh, hooker with a heart of gold sort of things. Like uh, they're just there by circumstance, but not in this case. Nobody's looking after them, so they look after themselves and they... Uh, they're pretty. Uh, they're pretty ruthless. They fight back hard. Yeah, I liked it when they were just throwing crap at the guys. It's like, yeah. yep. <laughs> Byron, do you have a take on these char- This set of characters. Well, I thought it was interesting when one of them made the point that Delilah didn't really feel like she wanted any of this. Like it was really Strawberry Alice who you know wanted blood for what had happened. That's a good point. And she, I think, the what she said was like, you know, Delilah doesn't seem to care. So why are we even doing this? And then you know. I think I'm trying to remember the, the literal, literal words that Strawberry Alice said. It was kind of like, you know, just because they ride us like horses doesn't mean we're horse. They can treat us like horses or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I thought that was kind of interesting, almost like, you know, it kind of made me question Strawberry Alice's motives. One thing I had a hard time uh, along these lines were I felt like one cowboy was really bad and deserved some severe retribution, but the other one, not so much. I mean, the other guy comes into the room, yeah. he does hold yeah. her, but and then realizing like, whoa, this is out of hand, he actually tries to pull him off of him. And, you know, he's actually trying to hold him back. And I'm sitting there going like throughout the whole movie, like, you got to give up your horses and you got to give up your horses. And like, you know, we've got to kill both of these cowboys. I'm like, does this other guy need killing? Sure, that's fair. I mean, yeah. I think that's 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 accurate. I mean, I think you get that feeling. But at the same time, man, it's a Western. Everybody's got to go. It's true. I, I guess I felt a little bit bad for that guy, especially as he was thirsty and needed some water and was bleeding. And they really shot him. So I, I, the, the other guy got a much faster death uh, in the outhouse, although less glamorous. Yeah, that was not a good way to go. Schofield kid, Byron, what do you take of what, is, what? What was your interest on the transformation of this character, who goes from being a guy who's all talk, to actually getting involved with something that he had glamorized, and then realized, I don't want any part of this, and he kind of becomes a pacifist in the end. What did you think about that transition? Well, I mean, it might just be me 
and there were the, the kind of a natural skeptic, but I didn't believe for two seconds that he had killed anyone when he oh yeah said he had killed like five men or whatever. I was like, okay, yeah, he's gonna come. The truth will come out later. Like, <laughs> so when that happened, it's just kind of like, oh, you know, surprise, surprise. I guess I um, and to be honest, I didn't. I wasn't really crazy about that actor. I mean, I guess Schofield Kid was supposed to be a little kind of annoying, um, like an annoying kind of punk kid. And if that's the case, then he did a really good job from that point of uh, perspective. But um, I wasn't really crazy about the character. I kind of wished that they kind of made him look or act like he was legit. Like maybe he was, in essence, a younger Will Money. Mm-hmm. So it would have been more surprising when he just breaks down later and confesses that he's never killed anyone or something like that. Five is a very round number. Like, it does seem like it's like, how many people did you kill? Yeah. Five, including one that came at me. Yeah, the Mexican. With a yeah. knife. <laughs> the rest of them I just shot cuz. No, no, it was six. Yeah, definitely six. In fact, yeah. I mean, I, I killed one of them with two of the guys with one shot. That's That's how good I was. Yeah. Yeah, not lying. True story. I don't know if it's because I've seen a lot of Westerns or maybe it's just a, a cinema thing in general, but usually the person who talks a lot about all the stuff they do or pe- talks too much, period, is usually full of I don't know. I have not seen... Uh, Clint Eastwood is a directing machine pretty much from like 1971 all the way through ni- uh, 2000, just straight up through today. He's cranked out tons of movies. I have not seen them all, but for me, this is my favorite uh, Clint Eastwood directed effort. And that's hard to do because I really liked Gran Torino coming into this, but I think I have this movie over Gran Torino. What about uh, you, Byron? Uh, where, where does this rank for your... Obviously, you said you haven't seen a lot of Clint Eastwood acting movies, but you said you enjoyed other of his direction efforts. Where does this one rank for you? Um, this one was pretty high. Um, trying to think of the other ones. Did he, he directed Trouble with a Curve, didn't he? Yes. Okay. Mm, yes. And Million, million yeah. Dollar Baby, Flags of Our Fathers, Letters to Iwo Jima, True Crime, Space Cowboy. I go with Million Dollar Baby, know. probably. It's the favorite one I've, I've seen of his that's directed. But I'm still holding out for the uh, Clint Eastwood directed animated film. I, I feel like that's got to that's gotta happen. Okay. Somebody needs to do it. It'd be interesting. <laughs> well, he did Jersey Boys, so I mean, he could have it in him. That was a, that was an unexpected uh, curveball right there. What about you, Brian? Is this uh, is this at the top of your Clint Eastwood direction efforts? I actually really like Trouble with a Curve. Yeah, I, I look. I all hats off to Grand Torino and Million Dollar Baby, but they were downers. Uh, yeah. I've mentioned a couple times on the podcast. That I have a hard time rewatching stuff that I know ahead of time. Uh, that, yeah, gosh, those movies are brutal. Um, I haven't seen the mule yet. Uh, looking forward to that one. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed trouble with the curve. I really enjoyed this movie and I feel like it's important to really enjoy the dichotomy that the differences in the movies he directs. So it's fantastic that he won an Oscar and best actor for a movie that he directed in the genre that he really helped put on the map. So I'll, st- I'll stick with Unforgiven, yeah. but hats off to being able to branch out and do something like uh, Trouble with the Curve. Yeah, and I, there's still several of these that I'd like to see. that I have not seen them all by any means, so I definitely want to see like Mystic River and uh, Bloodwork, High Plains Drifter, and Pale Rider. So 
I've got a lot of Clint Eastwood homework to do myself. Uh, as far as his acting performance goes, I can't say that I, it, I really enjoy the fun nature of the Dollars trilogy. Byron, I know you said you hadn't gotten into his uh, acting performances yet, but if I were to steer you in the next direction, I would go a fistful of dollars for a few dollars more and then the good and the bad and the ugly. That's a trilogy yeah. of movies. Start with the, they're pretty unconnected, so you could watch them in any order if you want to. I rarely say that, but they are fairly isolated uh, uh, in, endeavors, but start with a fistful of dollars and hopefully come back and tell us how you enjoyed that. That, that for me is my favorite uh, Clint Eastwood uh, acting. I don't know about you on that one, Brian. Um, yeah, probably. I do like I do like Escape from Alcatraz a lot too. Yes, Escape from Alcatraz is one of my absolute favorite. It's actually the only Clint Eastwood movie that I have purely on digital, uh, because I I wanted to watch it so bad one day I just ended up buying it. Uh, it's it's one of those uh, common occurrences that you'll find on demand somewhere, but for some reason the day I wanted to watch it it wasn't, and I was like ah buy it. So yeah, totally agree. Yeah, and Dirty Harry's obviously an iconic role for him too. Yeah. So. Um, what do you guys think about the locations here? We're not actually filming in Kansas and Wyoming. We're filming in Canada. Uh, so it's probably a little closer to where Brian is than the actual where they say it is in the movie. But what do you guys think of the look in terms of uh, the landscapes of the Wild West in 1881? I think they did an absolutely great job with it. But they kind of kept their sets very simplistic, which is fine. You know, really, you had four places. You had... Money's house, you had the town, then you had Big Whiskey the Barn, and then you had the other house where they shoot a guy. And then a canyon. You know, I mean it's just there's not there's not a whole Ned's lot house. Uh, in Ned's house. Which I guess if you turn the camera angle, it could have also been Money's house. So <laughs> it's just one of those things where, you know, they didn't have to blow any money on set design because they're in a very rural place there you know a lot of scenes of them riding through countrysides or storms that works and that's a great place to save money where you can and still make it true to true and authentic to where they were supposed to be yeah i would have never guessed that it was in canada um and that was a kind of a fun fact that i came across in researching was that uh clint eastwood he didn't allow any cars like anywhere around the set like just to kind of keep that natural pristine perspective for all the different scenes where they were uh, filming absolutely i thought one thing that you did leave out there that i thought was a really inspired moment was the old train uh that they sure. have where we meet english bob and they go shooting pheasants off of that and i don't know somehow uh a, it doesn't seem like the wild west if you don't get a train in there to me somehow so i, I definitely like that and uh we, in mentioning the movie pale rider i have not seen this but i did read that this is the same train and area of being shot at kenland eastwood also used in his 1985 western pale rider and apparently they use that because it's the specific gauge of railroad track that was used at the period mm -hmm. that's still in place and they can use that so going for authenticity there. And that part was shot in Sonaro, California. So that one's wow. not in Canada. Cool. For all of you train enthusiasts, <laughs> woo woo. Anytime you do a period piece, I always like to look at what they're wearing and stuff like that. Uh, did you guys uh, find the clothes? Uh, I always feel like everybody's too clean in Westerns. And this is another one where I, have, I had a feeling like, I don't think any, everybody has like two changes of clothes tops. 
and everybody looks like they're pretty pretty clean in this movie. Am I wrong? Obviously, Clint Eastwood falls in the mud dealing with the pigs. Yeah. That's that. That's one of those things that just gets me a little bit. Am I being unfair, Brian? Maybe a little bit, at least after they get into the area that they start doing their dirty work, because at that point they have uh, the whores to do basically anything they need. So I'm sure there was some clothes washing and other things. I really enjoyed when English Bob goes there and then he says, where can I find this Strawberry Alice person? He's like, go to the billiard hall and ask to play some billiards. He's like, even though I don't wish to play billiards, he goes, they... That billiard table burned down like nine years ago. <laughs> so I like I like that I like that it's a billiards hall, but there's no billiards. Yeah, wink, so, wink. Yeah, it's a little. Uh, it, it's going to Arby's. <laughs> you got to tell that story now, Brian. So uh, at our high school, we were allowed to have um, off-campus privileges. Once you had off-campus, you could go wherever you wanted for lunch or your off periods. Uh, it became a wink, wink nudge nudge thing that if you went somewhere with your girlfriend and you had no intention of eating food that you were going to arby's because <laughs> so, he would order food at arby's <laughs> right so anybody would be like oh where are you going <laughs> oh i'm going to arby's and they're like oh arby's well we're not getting sponsored from arby's now <laughs> or are we <laughs> i don't know that's true <laughs> I don't know. After you after you work up a sweat, sometimes a Jamoka shake hits the spot. <laughs> Come on, Arby's, hook us up. Anyway, interestingly enough, the uh, rain in the movie they had to create all by man-made. Uh, that was all man-made, which I always am always amazed at how realistic rain in a movie looks because it's a torrential downpour covering this whole set, uh, which it is a constructed set as well, but. If you really think about this, you go out in the middle of Calgary, or I mean, uh, you know, Alberta, Canada, and you set up this whole town, and then it just looks so real with the way that the lightning and the thunder and the, the rain's coming down. And I'm so glad they did that because it just adds to the scene as he's rolling in and the storm clouds are just going and he's coming in. And it's, to me, that's just, that's one of the best feeling moments of the movie, so... Got to give him extra credit on that special effect because it was actually a super dry spell that they were dealing with, and I would have never known. Yeah, absolutely. Byron, do you have any thoughts on the score? Uh, Clint Eastwood actually did the main theme himself. Yeah, I think that's the part I like the most. Just It felt really iconic. Like I feel like now, when I hear that, it'll make me think of Unforgiven, where in most movies, I don't really pay attention to the the soundtrack was scored that much so i thought that was a nice touch that he did again you definitely need to do a fistful of dollars <laughs> a few dollars more in the good the bad and the ugly especially that last one uh iconic that that's where the they got that like you'll know it right away when you hear it also but, be uh, aware that you're gonna have to um uh mortgage some time <laughs> toward <laughs> watching those three movies that's a, uh, it's like, hey, let's sit down and watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy, extended editions. Yeah. 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 Especially the good, the bad, and the ugly. I think that one's even longer than the other two. But, right. Uh, no, I, I thought, uh, I thought it was interesting that they didn't have a lot of intense music because, uh, they definitely landed the, like, when Clint Eastwood has a tender moment when he's talking to Delilah and as she's tending to his wounds and she offers to be with him in, in an intimate way and he declines but you know says that I just can't because of his wife and it's, it's too painful for him and that's a tender moment and I thought that they landed those tender scenes well 
Um, and there's a lot of silence in this movie that's pretty effective, but I did find myself wanting something a little more um, intense in the bar scene when Clint Eastwood comes back and, you know, he's, you're in trouble now. So yeah. that was that was one thing I thought might, the, the soundtrack could have been a little stronger there. Sure. How about look for this? Byron, did you find any fun facts or interesting things that uh, you didn't know before? Well, this was kind of a one trivia, uh, bit of trivia that I found was that uh, in the shootout in Greeley's um, at the end, uh, Will fires all six bullets from the kid Schofield. So when he tells the rest of the men to clear out the back, he's threatening them with an empty pistol. Mm. It's always fun to be able to bluff that well. I, I, <laughs> I love I love movies where guys can legit, you know, just bluff the bluff you out of your shoes. Brian, look for this. I like the interactions that have happened with Gene Hackman and Clint Eastwood over the years. Um, I think the rapport that they have as as fellow actors is really strong. So my look for this would be go out and look for more movies with the two of them in it and really enjoy the rapport that they share together in various films. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it was interesting when Clint Eastwood was handed his Oscar on this that Barbara Streisand was the one who handed it to him. And in 2004, when Clint Eastwood wins Best Picture for Million Dollar Baby, he also receives the Oscar from Barbara Streisand again. So before giving it to him the second time, she whispers to him, I'd be happy to give it to you again, Clint. So uh, I don't know what uh, Clint Eastwood's doing uh, in terms of his direction. I don't know that the mule's going to get uh, nominated, but, uh, you know, if uh, he wins the third Oscar, you got to put Babs up there. So, You mean Mecha Streisand? Mecha Streisand. Uh, Byron, any more look for this? Yes, there was another one. Um, if you remember, there was one point in the movie where um, Lil Bill was talking about English Bob's background, and he starts talking about uh, Corky Corcoran, the guy that English Bob killed but it turns out it wasn't quite as an amazing story as uh, what actually happened. Well, the character Corky Corcoran is actually the name of a cameraman that was filming a promotional spot for another Clint Eastwood movie a while back. And uh, during a break in an interview with Clint, uh, Clint Eastwood asked what the cameraman's name was. And when he told him it was Corky, Corky Corcoran, Clint didn't believe that was his actual name. His actual, his given name was John, but... He went by Corky his whole life, and Clint said that was a hell of a name, so decided to put it in uh, The Unforgiven. I like it. Brian. I'm sorry. What was the question? Look for this again. <laughs> Do you have another look for this? I'm sorry. I totally froze up there. Uh, no, I'm, I'm good. All right. <laughs> I'm and not, uh, be on the editing room floor. <laughs> I it's tempting to leave in. <laughs> <laughs> Deer in the headlights while like, crap, what were we talking what? about? <laughs> uh, I had, I, I, the body count in this is nine, uh, even though it seems like it's a more violent movie than that. Yeah, that seems a little low, but I think I saw that too. It doesn't get to double digits. That's exactly how many times 50 Shank got, sent, got shot. I'm going to go with one last one. With When Will notes that Ned still uses a Spencer rifle, it would imply that Ned carried it in the Civil War as a member of the U.S. Colored Troops Cavalry Regiment. So that's a deep cut that I wouldn't have gotten on my own. Okay. Yeah, small glimpse into his past. 
How does this movie affect you? How did you relate to it? How does it, uh, what, does it remind you of anything, Byron? Um, well, the closest connection that I can think of, it's not super personal, but um, it was actually this game that I've been playing on PC um, called uh, Destiny 2, and I recently finished its latest expansion, which is called Forsaken, which, was, which had a lot of Wild West themes in it. Um, it's actually a lot like Firefly that Brian had mm, mentioned. Yeah. And uh, Nathan Fillion actually voice acts one of the characters. He's in the Disney robot, too. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, he's a guy, he's the one that dies and um, in this in this expansion. Um, so it's kind of a space western. And uh, you're basically hunting down seven Spoiler or eight bears. Yeah, it's been out for <laughs> months. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you're basically hunting down like seven or eight barons who are responsible for killing that character at the very beginning and there's actually a mission where you try to wipe them all out at once in their hideout uh, a lot like the climax in Unforgiven and Greeley's uh, Greeley's billiards unfortunately the mission is just designed to introduce you to the villains they all get away and you have to hunt each one down individually so it's not quite as easy as Will Money makes it look mm. how about you Brian how does this one affect you um just as a piece of like you know, where I'm living now, and, and I, I'll admit that the, this area has a bit of a uh, Western vibe just based on the fact of where I've lived my whole life. So it's just one of those things, and maybe that's why I've had a little revival on Westerns is just kind of living vicariously of that moving out West sort of feel. But uh, I don't know. I just I've, I truly enjoy watching more me- Westerns now, and I'm curious how much my opinion on this movie would have been different if you had caught me, say, six or seven years ago. Yeah, that, that would. Anytime you have some connection to the area that it's in, it always is an extra enhancement. I, for me, when there are such consequences for when these guys kill people, you don't normally see that in a movie. Normally, you're so caught up in the moment. It's a moment of adrenaline. It's a moment of hatred. It's a moment of self-defense or something like that. But you know, when they have to sit there and you know, wallowing what they're doing, and Ned even kind of has this moment of like, I'm I'm out, guys. And uh, it reminds me of when I was in, like, elementary school, I might have gotten into a couple of fights and stuff like that. And so when uh, the teacher kind of says the words of, like, you know, go to the principal's office, you're like, oh, crap, my parents are getting called at this point. And you kind of get that nauseous feeling in your stomach, and you realize you're in a heck of a lot of trouble. And, you know, you start being like really apologetic and you're just like, oh, man, I'm out. Or, I, you know, you want as you wish you could take it back or just go anywhere else. And in a way, the way Ned looked at that moment in time, I just it, it stuck with me as like, yeah, yeah, you know that feeling. And uh, luckily, I haven't felt that feeling too much as an adult. But uh, I, that that resonated with me for some reason, that that moment in there. So my favorite time in the movie or sorry, my favorite time of the podcast has come up. Byron, you ready to do some superlatives with us? Ready to roll. All right. Why don't you kick us off and give us your MVP of Unforgiven? Okay, uh, my MVP was uh, Gene Hackman, his little Bill. Um, I just, I loved Bill's dialogue with W.W. Beauchamp. Um, well, English Bob was in jail. Just the way he just basically broke down and dis- disassembled his entire mythos of all the stories that he had been telling <laughs> uh ww this whole time it's just I, I like what i like about gene hackman is he just he kind of comes off as like a likable person but then he just switches like 
so quickly to just this kind of venomous just jab like when he uh like the fifth time they corrected him for saying uh uh duck of death duck of death duck of death yeah he's just like i mean duck like (laughs) i know what i'm saying it's it was so good no that is good Uh, as an architect would you want him to do roof roof work for you not at all (laughs) i wouldn't tell him that though (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that is are great. We, this, are we approaching the segment of uh, both of you destroying Gene Hackman's uh, lumberjack skills? He uh, apparently, you know, my first thought was everyone's like, he's a terrible carpenter by looking at the outside of the house. And my first thought was like, I don't know. They could have certainly made this look a lot more like slapped together than this. And yeah. I don't really see why he's such a bad carpenter. It's even on my second pass, like when they first show the house, the outside doesn't really show it. But uh, they certainly show it on the inside. It's uh, it's disheveled on the inside, and there aren't enough receptacles to catch the leaking water from everywhere. And I, I really like that scene. Is he's trying to write this? Uh, Beauchamp's trying to write these uh, his accounts down, and there's water everywhere in this house. I just, yeah. it's not a funny movie, but that's a funny moment. I like that. So, Brian MVP. Uh, I'm gonna go with Clint on this one. Uh, just just kind of getting the round robin of all the parts right where. He, director actor you know i'm I'm gonna go with the obvious one on this one just because it's clint eastwood man this is what he does i would i and i want to kind of see the difference between these two i would have said hackman based on acting alone but because eastwood is also the director here and he also picked the script and after sitting around for 10 years he came back and thought to do it and then did it passionately i also am going to have to go eastwood but i i think the stronger acting performance does go to gene hackman which is why i give him my best supporting actor uh as well so byron who's your best supporting actor uh it's two for gene hackman <laughs> two for gene hackman yeah. and the oscars agree too brian are you gonna make it a clean sweep uh no no i'm sticking with uh clint first best supporting actor oh i'm sorry god i am just not with it right now uh no i'm gonna go best who more yeah i'll go with uh gene hackman for best supporting actor so it is a clean sweep then All right. i swear uh, i don't have a glazed look over my eye i've just been <laughs> like I've been looking stuff up and like as we're talking about stuff and then I'm like, ooh, I should bring this up. And then I'm sorry. That's that's my fault. <laughs> I want to leave this in so bad, but I probably won't. <laughs> um, Byron's is not indicative of how it usually Oh, no, don't worry about it. You've caught me a couple times where I'm like, oh, <laughs> I really wasn't paying attention. Uh, hidden Jim, Byron, who is the most underappreciated or most hidden – great piece of work in this cast um i kind of if i had to pick one i'd say saul rubinek um i thought he did a really good job uh, i think he was really convincing as an impressionable you know naive city slicker who didn't really know much about the wild the wild west um but i really also thought um this is beauchamp you're talking about right beauchamp yeah strawberry alice did a pretty good job too and the the actress's name is escaping me but i thought she did a good job francis fisher yeah Brian, who is your hidden gem? Uh, I'm going to go with Richard Harris on this. I'm a huge fan of Richard Harris. And uh, I had I had actually forgotten he was in this movie uh, until the rewatch. And I had just completely deleted the entire English bill getting his butt kick part out of my memory. And I was like, oh, 
gosh, this happened. Right. So, uh, yeah, Richard Harris, I'm a huge fan of his acting. I think I first became seriously aware of him as an actor watching Patriot Games with uh, Harrison Ford and uh, kind of backdated so much of my movie knowledge to go back and rewatch things that he was in. You know, obviously Gladiator we've talked about a couple times and he was Dumbledore and Count of Monte Cristo. I know you guys did a podcast on that already. So just, you know, hats off to Richard Harris. I am going to go with Anna Levine, who plays Delilah. I like that uh, she has a sense of vulnerability to her, even remorse, as Byron was saying. Like, I kind of feel bad all this is happening. And as little Bill goes off the deep end and, you know, he's controlling this town in a very authoritarian manner. And he's even he has the best of intentions to reduce violence in his town, but he's controlling violence through the use of violence in this super hypocritical kind of way. And I thought more than anybody, I thought Delilah's character probably assesses how the people in the town would have felt like, man, you're going off the deep end or like even Strawberry Alice was another person that she was kind of like, guys, I don't know that, you know, my face is cut up, but like, I don't know about all this. So I was uh, rooting for her and Clint Eastwood to, or uh, I was rooting for her and Clint Eastwood's character, William Money, to get together in the end and, uh, it's not that kind of story, so you don't end up with the uh, happy ending there. But uh, I, for a moment, I thought it could have gone that way. So long way around saying I'm, I liked Anna Levine and her role there. No, I, I'd agree with that. In fact, one of my, my favorite shots of the movie, which I know we're getting to, so I'll kind of hold on to, but um, her whole monologue back or dialogue back and forth between uh, her and Clint Eastwood was one of the best parts of the movie. Mm-hmm. So if you had to recast somebody, or if you could recast somebody, Byron, who are you going to recast, and who are you going to put in their place? I would recast Schofield Kid, and I was trying to think of who I would like to see in that role, and I would go with either uh, Sam Rockwell or uh, Woody Harrelson. Yeah, I could see that. I could see both of those. Yeah. Those are good. Pi- those are good picks, Brian. Who are you going to recast? Um, I did a bad thing again, and I recast this movie completely in a modern-day perspective. It started with uh, with um, Little Bill. I really wanted um, to do him justice in a modern-day retelling of this. And when I say modern-day retelling, I don't mean like the Romeo and Juliet with handguns. Uh, just if they did this Western again. So I was thinking somebody like Gerard Butler or Gary Oldman would both make really good uh, little bills. Um, I was thinking of mixing it up a bit with the other characters, with having somebody like Idris Elba as money. I was thinking you could have somebody like Jeff Bridges as Ned, someone a little more frazzled, uh, still talking the good talk, but when it comes down to it, not as able to pull the trigger as you would have thought. I was thinking of like Kenneth uh, Branagh, I think is how you pronounce his name. Anyway, he was in um, Valkyrie uh, as English Bob and somebody like Will Poulter as Skullfield Kid, just somebody in his 20s who's kind of a, maybe a little bit more doofusy kind of person. Hmm, I like that one. That's probably one of my favorite ones of your picks. Did you do a Strawberry Alice by chance? Tilda Swinton. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, 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 yeah, I like that one a lot too. So, somebody who can pull out that vengeance a little bit. Mm-hmm. No, that's a good one. Uh, Francis Fisher, so good at that. I, I, I 
wanted to give her the best supporting actor, but Hackman was just too good. And uh, earlier I was trying to think of it, and I couldn't think of it. But uh, by the way, if you were wondering which child, that's not Scott Eastwood that uh, is her is her child. It's uh, it's Francesca Eastwood. So she looks more like her mother than her father, though. So <laughs> she does. If I were to recast somebody, and I apologize after Brian professed being a fan of Richard Harris, I'm going after Richard Harris here, and mm. I, he would no longer be English Bob in my version. He could just be American Bob if he wanted to be, or like, you know, Nebraska Bob or whatever. I'm going to put somebody a little tougher in his spot. I, I thought he did not strike me as somebody who killed people. And so I'm going to put Robert Duvall in there. At his age at this time period, it probably would have been pretty good, and it would have put him about the same age of like Little Bill and Clint Eastwood. If, somebody who was from that different era. And I thought that was important about this movie, that all three of these guys were from... A different time when people just went around killing people. This is probably a little bit later than West, and uh, you just don't do that anymore. And they're kind of these survivors from this wilder time in the West. And so I didn't get that roughness and toughness from that he had been through that, even if he indeed was the duck of death and was overblown and proposing a larger-than-life story than he really was. At the same time, he was a killer and an assassin, and... And I didn't get that off of him. Am I being unfair? No. No, but I mean, I've seen a lot of Richard Harris now, and he could definitely kill some people. Okay. Yeah. So, anyway, Robert Duvall for me. Best shot. Uh, What's your best shot of the movie, Byron? Uh, I really like the scene uh, in the snow that Brian was talking about with uh, Will Money and Delilah. Um, I kind of feel like the drastic change in scenery punctuated... Uh, the drastic change in Will Money, because once he once he kind of came out of his sickness, he just seemed kind of a different character. Like he was more uh, s- stronger, more confident than um, than before, all the way up to when he was traveling to build a uh, big whiskey. And uh, it's almost like uh, the sickness only killed his insecurities and his fears. And once he recovered, he was just like more confident and more deadlier. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And I, I've seen this various times in movies where there is a crispness, a rejuvenating newness that comes from scenes where fresh snow has fallen. And it's one of those things that, you know, you even see him use it in black Panther, just one of those things Mm -hmm. where he's coming out of it and, and he's been tempered and, and now he's a stronger steel, you know, first you heat it, the fever, then you hammer it, you know, he's going through the, the trial of living through it. And then you, you, you douse it and something cold and you get something harder come out the other side. What about you, Brian? What's your best shot of the movie? Uh, that's hands down it. It's when he's talking to, uh, uh, the whore, uh, outside the, uh, uh, cabin and it's that shot behind them of you know the the field and the snow and yeah and you really do you feel like it's a breath breath of fresh air of him you know getting out and moving around and i think everybody's been ill enough at some point in time to know that you know when you're able to get out and about for that first time after it you feel better kind of like if you have an ear infection the first time where it really pops it hurts so bad and then it's complete and total relief that scene just spoke complete and total relief 
Well, I might have alluded to mine earlier uh, coming into town. He is, they go into a first person shot of him coming into town on his horse. You see Ned on display and you see a whiskey bottle, which you notice that he keeps on his hand, fly out in front of the camera now empty because he's like down the whole thing and he's going into killing mode. It is a little bit like what you're talking about, Brian. He does have like a spinach, like he drinks a bottle <laughs> of whiskey in Yeah. And then he's a murder machine, so um, it's what he does to be able to get through it, clearly. I hate and... to see him on tequila. <laughs> so I really liked that scene of him coming into town. So uh, it, it was really great, and that just narrowly edged out to when he's looking, staring down Little Bill in the, in the uh, saloon or the uh, brothel as well. So the end of this movie for whatever reason, I think is shot, edited, and just, I don't know, I think it finishes better than it starts, maybe. After watching it a few times, I just like, man, this movie finishes well. So, kind of like that whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> Best scene, Byron? I kind of mentioned this earlier, but I really like the scene between English Bob and, uh, and Little Bill in the jail cell, especially the point where he has WW uh, hand English bob the gun and uh little bill's just daring him to draw and then he 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 gives in and hands the gun back i just thought that was really good i think he wanted him to take it yeah well you know what the really interesting thing about that scene was for me was earlier on with the one-armed deputy when he says here's your gun and he walks over and he empties it and he goes i just loaded it for you and he goes only i load my own gun nice how about you brian best scene I'm going to go with the the climax of the movie with uh, I, I love a good movie where the for lack of a better word, uh, anti-hero or protagonist, however you want to go with it. Uh, when he walks in and uh, Fisher kind of ushers all the girls away, they're like, oh, crap, because they're the only ones that can see him. And little Bill's talking a big game and he just unloads on him and he doesn't start with the pistol because he's already had some lack of success with that. He starts with the double-barreled shotgun, and I love that. It's like there's not any finesse to this. He's not going in there to prove something about his gunsmanship. He's going in there to kill folk. Absolutely. And uh, I I almost wanted to pick that one, so I'm glad you did pick that one. But for me, the one that I liked, and like I said, this is kind of an anti-Western in that the killing has consequences. I liked that about this movie, and the scene that I thought best represented that was when the Schofield kid gets done having killed the bad cowboy on the, you know, on the latrine, and then they go and they're standing outside a big whiskey together, and they've at a moment they've escaped. Their adrenaline's wearing off, and the Schofield kid is laughing. He's like, "We really got him! I, I killed him! I, I really killed him! Good, didn't I?" And you know, and you know. Will's numb. He's just standing looking at the town. He wants to get Ned his money and go back home. And he's not proud of what he did. And the Schofield kid is just trying to enjoy this thing that he wanted. But it's that moment of, I've gotten this thing that I wanted. And I don't actually like it. In fact, he breaks down completely. And that's where that transition really kicks in. uh, When the adrenaline wears off. And I just, I really like that scene. It was really well done. Can I bring up one part that uh, it's not really the scene that bothers me, but just something in the movie in general toward the back half that just bothered me a little bit. So Will gets his butt kicked. He crawls out into the rain 
and presumably gets picked up by uh, Morgan Freeman's character and taken to that barn outside of town. It's a barn outside of town that, you know, the girls can easily come to and from. Then at the end of the movie, they're actually watching town as the girl comes out with their money and he asks if she's been followed. And they're like, no, they followed the other two girls. How dumb are these cops? Like, like it's, it just, <laughs> they're always right there. Like it just, other than just little seems, bill, you can tell he's oh, the only one who knows what they're yeah, doing. They're like, like, one of them's like, afraid. He's like, Oh, you didn't check that uh, abandoned barn, like five feet out of town. Nah, there's nobody in the abandoned barn, five feet out of town. It's abandoned. It says it right in the barn. Abandoned barn. Nobody's I, in it. <laughs> I remember watching her ride out with the money, and I'm like, man, any mess of people could come out after them right now, but they're not. And I was like, this is nuts. <laughs> I love it when you find these little things, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Just the thing, well, it's like I told you guys uh, – on an earlier episode, there are just little things that just bother my OCD. And I'm like, that, that right there, I just, it shouldn't bother me, but it does. Or sorry. One last part about that scene is this is the moment at which point this, uh, will gives in and he breaks his sobriety. He can't deal with the process. He's watching this Schofield kid struggle with it. And he also starts drinking in that scene once he finds out that Ned has also been killed. Like that news that Ned isn't isn't alive anymore drives him over the edge. The anger's coming in. So not only is the Schofield kid transforming his character, we see the big transformation that Byron was talking about earlier in William's character. And I just, I liked how both of those characters turned in the same scene. So Sure. Change one thing, Byron. I talked about this earlier, but uh, I thought it was a little too obvious that Schofield Kill hadn't killed anyone before. Um, I think it would have been a bigger twist if they had maybe written the character to be much closer to uh, William Money's character in his youth. And I think it would have been a more interesting uh, to see Money basically interact with a character who was essentially himself in his younger days. Uh, I didn't get the feeling that Schofield Kid was really anything like Money was back when Money was uh, a more proper outlaw. Mm-hmm. Brian. See, now you got me thinking of who I would recast for that perspective. <laughs> like, I kind of went for who he was in the movie. Now I'm trying to think of who I would cast for him. Byron, as... we can't stop him. If we just let him keep going, he'll recast everybody you know. <laughs> no, one is we'll reca- no one is safe. Yeah, nobody's safe. I'll be recast before the end of this episode. Um, if I had to change one thing, I would have probably had something else happen earlier in the movie. Uh, I, I do think the beginning was a bit slow. Just anything to try to maybe uh, ratchet it up a notch and and uh, make it a little less. We're riding a horse. We're riding a horse. We're riding a horse. We're riding a horse. We're there. Okay. But you didn't, so the, the dialogue between him and Ned where he's really stressing and telling himself that like – it's not just he's telling Ned, I don't do that anymore. I'm not a killer anymore. I've changed my ways. He's kind of telling himself that. And without yes. that time, then you, you wouldn't see that as much. Sure, but there still could be something. Ha- like You can interject things that would make him want to do those things. And okay. then Ned being like, here you go. And he's like, no, nah, I don't do that anymore. I don't do that anymore. And are you sure? I mean, that was pretty rough. No, I don't do that anymore. What about another English Bob scene or another little Bill scene? Would that would that keep your pace up if they 
or get maybe the a action di- moving through something else. Yeah, maybe a different bounty hunter other than English Bob, one that doesn't give up his guns and there's a throwdown. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I see what you're saying. And along those lines, I love the climax of this movie so much. Uh, the third time I watched it, I just found myself really kind of wishing that as he left the bar, uh, sorry, I keep calling it a bar. It's 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 a uh, brothel. As he's leaving the brothel, billiards. There is a bar in the brothel, if that makes you feel like better. It does. It does. And also, it, it's a billiard hall. We, we established this earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the uh, as he's leaving, though, he tells people not to shoot at him. I kind of want somebody to test him and, like, raise a gun at him and have him take out a few more people in the streets, like, really showing how awesome of a killer he is, which we've seen already, but I wouldn't mind seeing one more round before he mounts his horse and tells people, he's like, you better bury Ned and you better not touch those ladies anymore. Otherwise, I'm coming back. And so I guess I would have liked a little more gunfire at the end. So maybe that would have taken it out of the uh, drama things and too much into the action quadrant. But uh, I, that would be the mildly request. Maybe maybe a direction scene where like you add a little more gunshots. Sure. Get that kill count in the double digits. So close. So close. Nine. That's a frustrating yeah. number. Uh <laughs> It's not well-rounded like five. I know. See? That, does sound, that sounds so much better. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Byron, what's your best quote of the movie? I mean, this is the one quote that I think people quote all the time, so I tried to steer clear of that one. So I guess my other favorite quote would be when William Money's going into the saloon in the climax, and um, right after he shoots Skinny Dubois, uh, Gene Hackman says, you know, oh, you just shot, you just killed an unarmed man. And Will and Money goes, well, he should have armed himself if he's going to decorate his saloon with my friend. And the way he said it, it just sounded like he was about to crack, his voice was about to crack. Like, he was just really emotional about it. I just thought it was really good. Mm, yeah, that that's good Eastwood right there. Brian, best quote. That was it. <laughs> that was mine too. <laughs> I was like, sorry. Oh, crap. <laughs> That's uh, okay. No, it's okay. Yeah, that was that was a great line. <laughs> it was a really good line. You nailed it. Good job. Uh, so for me, uh, I like again. I'm going to go back to that scene where the Schofield kid is lamenting of what he really did uh, in killing for the first time. Uh, he kind of says like it doesn't seem real. He's never going to breathe again, ever. I mean, he's dead now, all on the count of pulling a trigger. And so Will Money says, "It's a hell of a thing killing a man. Take away all he's got." And all he's ever going to have. And uh, Schofield Case says, yeah, well, I guess he had it coming. And then he turns to him and he says, we all got it coming, kid. Yep. It's time to give it a rating. So, Byron, on a five-star scale, what would you give this movie? I would give it four. Four out of five. I haven't seen many westerns, but I, I really enjoyed it. I really liked it. Deserving of Best Picture of the Year that year? I would say so. Mm-hmm. That's fair. And- and Brian, five-star scale. How about you? Knowing my own special scaling system, I'm going to give this a four as well. Um, like I said, it, it's a little slow. You, this is a movie you have to be in the mood for, but it's definitely a rewatchable film. I'm going to go four and a half, so I'm going to go a little higher than you guys on this one. I really enjoyed it, and like I said, a little more action along the lines of what Brian or I were saying might have pulled it up into the five-star scale. 
I have to admit, if I were picking the Oscars this year, I'd have a very hard time because Scent of a Woman is also in the candidates there that year, and that, that leaves me in a tougher position than I usually find myself in for picking Best Picture. So uh, I think this might be the better overall movie, but along the lines of what Brian said, I might be more inclined to reach for Scent of a Woman a little more often. But 4.5 for me. So, Fry, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Next time, we're going to Miami because it's wintertime and it's time to warm up. And so we're going to go with a Miami-based comedy for this next one. You ready for three options on that? Let's do it. All right. Ace Ventura Pet Detective from 1994. A goofy detective specializing in animals goes in search of a missing mascot of the Miami Dolphins. Option two. Meet the Fockers from 2004. All hell breaks loose when the Burns family meets the Fokker family for the first time. Follow up to the popular Meet the Parents. Uh, option three, The Pest from 1997. A Miami con man agrees to be a human target for a neo-Nazi manhunter in order to collect $50,000 if he survives. It has been a really, really long time since I've watched Ace Ventura, so I'm definitely going to go with that. And if uh, if the listening audience doesn't know already, the day I pick a Ben Stiller movie is the day that uh, I've something's happened to me, like mentally. So uh, yeah, let's go with Ace. Alrighty then. Ha- hashtag no offense to the pest. <laughs> well, thank you, Byron, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Your first podcast, I would say, was a smashing success. Oh. So. What, what would your cowboy name be, by the way? So if Brian is the uh, Spokane Brian, what, what's your what's your on-the-nose really obvious? Or would it be Spokane Fry? That could be that. That's a good question. Um, it would probably be uh, Creole Byron or something. I don't know. I was from the Louisiana. The Byron of Nashville. Oh, Bayou Byron. Ooh. Bayou Byron. Get the, yeah, yeah, get the alliteration in it. Yeah. That's tough. I, I like that. That that I, I'm I'm shaking in my boots. Yeah, you could also be a Harry Potter character after that. <laughs> ah, awesome. Well, thank you so much though for coming out and talking about this movie with us. We really had a good time. Uh, if, uh, we hope you did too. And you're always welcome back if you'd like to come back and join us again. And uh, Brian, thanks again, man. Hey, always a pleasure, Russ. To all of the listeners out there. All the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us because we want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. We really want to engage with you. So every week, Brian's going to post on how you can find the movie, find out what movies are coming next, find out some extra fun facts along there, and please, please, please share your thoughts on the previous week's movie. Also... Email us at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com if you want to talk to us more or even be on the show. So, as always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? The fifth thing is a mystery. It is a reason. It is the goal. It is a deep sacrifice and a perfect victory. Only you can find it. And if you do, it will set you free.